What makes Jesus mad? I mean, really, what do you think it would take to get on Jesus' nerves to the point that he's just had it? <laughs> Matthew 23 comes to my mind with the seven woes to the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. He even said their style of evangelism was so twisted that it turned people into children of hell. <laughs> Those are pretty strong words, but even in the seven woes, the text never explicitly says that Jesus was angry, mad, or offended. In fact, there's only one place in the Gospels where Jesus is described explicitly as angry and offended. Mark 10:14 says Jesus was angry or indignant with his disciples. What were they doing that was so annoying and egregious that Jesus had finally had it? What made Jesus suddenly scold them, the ones closest to him, and who were just trying to help? While you're looking up the passage in Mark 10, let me tell you about working with some of the most wonderful and annoying people I've ever known. When I was a bit younger, I used to work in the junior department at Camp Meeting in Collegedale, Tennessee. Now, Camp Meeting was, and still is in some places, a week-long series of meetings for adults, youth, and kids, and each age group has their own series of daily programs. I was both blessed and cursed to be assigned to the junior department. Somehow, the prospect of dealing with 110 to 12 year olds for an entire week seemed, well, exhausting. I can still remember at the end of each day my head still ringing with the sounds of Whose side are you leaning on? I'm leaning on the Lord's side. I lean, I lean, I lean, I lean, I lean, I lean. <laughs> I was rather amused uh, every time they came to the syncopated I lean to see their leaning motions keeping up with the music. Ha! There's nothing quite like old camp meeting experience in the junior department. I might sound like I'm complaining, but I loved it. The songs were often so bad you couldn't get them out of your head for weeks, however hard you might try, and maybe that's the point. But where else can you spend a week doing skits, games, and teaching kids to have fun with Jesus? And where else can you find Ben, the science guy, exploding hydrogen balloons and making lightning with his Tesla coil? Every year I wondered if the fire marshal was going to shut us down or if we'd accidentally set off the fire sprinklers in the Collegedale church. But at the end of the day, we only scared a few adults and maybe darkened the ceiling in a couple of places. After the Eileen song, the kids compete to see how fast and loud they can sing hallelujah hallelujah it occurs to me that those of us who complain about kids being out of control and uncooperative should never encourage this type of singing it's actually more like screaming than singing there's an old myth debunked a long time ago which says that if you allow kids to let off steam they will calm down on the contrary the evidence including the data from my 100 camp meeting test subjects, indicates that if you encourage kids to let off steam, they create even more steam. But we, the mature leaders, 
rush headlong into this experiment in chaos until the floor is shaking and the decibel level has exceeded all OSHA's standards for heavy equipment operators. Next, the game warden, otherwise known as Pastor Jim, introduces my segment of the program. Who wants treasure in heaven? My PowerPoint, PowerPoint adaptation of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is about to be field tested again. The kids yell and applaud as I bound to the stage and introduce the game. I'm really quite terrible at this, but hey, this is camp meeting in the junior department, so I have plenty of latitude. The first game goes well. As camp meeting progresses, I have to make new games, easier ones, to give more kids a chance. On Saturday night, we give a free week of junior camp to the one who wins the final game. When the last question of the final game is answered successfully, the room sounds like a conclusion of a hockey game, minus the Zamboni. I don't mean to portray camp meeting as a long and loud exercise in crowd manipulation, although there are certainly elements of that. There are also the quiet reflective moments when a kid asks you to pray for his mom who is sick or her uncle who is dying of cancer. And it's always wonderful to see a room full of energetic juniors raising their hands because they love Jesus. Halfway through the week, I discovered I rather enjoyed not knowing what went on in the adult meetings. I even felt sorry for those who didn't have a science guy to blow things up and arouse their curiosity about God's universe. And for all the spiritual food that is supposedly dished out in the adult preaching services, maybe a dumb song now and then would allow people to get up and flail their arms a bit. I'm not charismatic by any stretch of the imagination, but sometimes a little motion would send more oxygen to the brain, I think. I guess I've learned at least one thing from working in the kids' divisions. God uses the humble, even annoying things to get through to us. For those of you who think these kinds of kids' meetings are a waste of time, please don't tune out just yet. Listen to what Jesus thought about kids. The unimportant, annoying, too loud, and waste of time is what Jesus' disciples were thinking when they saw the kids with their moms coming toward Jesus. At the very least, the kids would take up the master's time that he needed for more important people, like the rich young ruler they saw approaching. So they took the initiative and intervened just in time. The Gospel of Mark records that Jesus was indignant at the disciples. That's in Mark 10:14. This is the only time Jesus is ever depicted as indignant. The Greek word agonakteo means literally much grief. It means Jesus was offended and angry. You might think this would describe Jesus' mood on a number of occasions, including the cleansing of the temple and perhaps at his own trial. But this strong emotion was reserved for the one time, the time children were kept away from Jesus. Actually, the disciples might have known how Jesus felt about children. In the previous chapter, the disciples got into a familiar argument about who was the greatest in the kingdom. 
When Jesus found out about it, he called a child over to join their group. Mark 9, starting with verse 35, says, He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, a little child, and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The disciples should have known not to ask who is the greatest. Undoubtedly, they simply wanted a clue as to Jesus' standards for determining rank or status. Every group, of course, every club and kingdom has its own rules for getting in and getting ahead, so they figured they had a right to know. But when you ask Jesus about status in the kingdom, be prepared for an answer that will shake up the natural order of things. Contrary to every human instinct, Jesus picked a person with the least amount of status and maturity and said, Be like that. Be humble, like this child, or you will never make it into the kingdom. You would think Jesus would at least give some credit to those who had a mature spiritual outlook on life, who had high standards and lived up to them. You might think he would at least pick a Bible scholar or someone who rated most improved on the sanctification scale. That's the kind of answer the disciples expected. Instead, Jesus said the greatest status in the kingdom is to have no status. What would it mean to be completely without any consciousness of status? It would mean being like a young child. It would mean being unconscious of either our supposed goodness or badness, and it would mean loving Jesus more than our own spiritual dignity. To do away with status in the kingdom is to get into the kingdom on Jesus' terms, not ours. Getting in on our terms means we become good enough to qualify. We think we need enough Christian maturity or status in order to get in. But Jesus' terms are entirely different, and he chose an example of immaturity, a child, to show us what those terms are. Jesus' terms for being great in his kingdom are based on grace. Our terms are based on status and achievement. Receiving grace comes natural to a child. Everything a child is, has, or does is given to her. She has nothing she can call her own. Oh, she has her father's eyes. She has her mother's eyes or her father's nose. <laughs> Even her physical characteristics are not her own. Children naturally live on grace because they wouldn't survive without it. They don't have to be humble. They don't have to humble themselves to accept it. They just accept it as normal. For example, kids can live completely and exclusively on their parents' income and not have the slightest embarrassment about it. You never hear a 10-year-old saying, yeah, my parents tried to give me a bike the other day, but I told them I wanted to earn my own way. I'm not going to accept charity, and I'll repay them for all those meals, too. 
No wonder Jesus was indignant with the disciples. The prospect of rejecting the very ones who were unselfconsciously the most receptive to his grace made Jesus hurt and angry. He was indignant because the disciples' simple act of age discrimination turned the nature of the kingdom upside down. The disciples were saying, in effect, you have to be somebody in order to be with Jesus. Or worse, you have to be as important or as good as we are in order to be with Jesus. We should all be angry when the gospel is perverted. When grace is turned into some kind of progress report, status, or character development. We should be angry when a lack of grace discriminates against the weak or the young or those who don't fit the mold. I guess that's one of the things I love about kids. They break the molds, the molds we make up for them out of our own expectations and desires. They are so confident of grace that they dare to explore the boundaries. And sometimes, sure, they explore too far. So the natural consequences and appropriate discipline sometimes have to inspire a course correction. But even during those explorations and even mistakes, good parents always give grace, unconditional love. That's the bedrock, the foundation of good parenting, and it's the foundation of God's kingdom of grace. Not long ago, Starla and I had the opportunity to gather all of our grandkids together at once and try to take a picture. It was one of the best moments of the day and also one of the most frustrating and hilarious. Really, get seven small children together and have them stand still for 30 seconds and smile all at the same time. It's easy, right? <laughs> well, you be the judge. Forget smiling. Maybe we should just settle on getting everyone to look in the same general direction of the camera. Wait, wait, one of the adults is not even looking at the camera. And, and where's Emmett? We don't even have everyone here. <laughs> this is my favorite. It shows all the wonderful personalities developing. From left to right, there's Emmett, Allison, Zara, Eliana, Blake, Jonathan, and Carter. Actually, I'm glad we didn't get the perfect picture with everyone standing prim and proper with forced smiles just enduring the moment. If you love kids, you love them because of their individuality and flaws, not in spite of them. And yes, I'm quite aware that being a grandparent gives me the advantage of enjoying the best and letting their parents deal with the worst. But somehow, I think by learning to love children even when they're at their worst, we learn how Jesus loves us all. I dream of one day standing on the sea of glass with all the redeemed, while some of us choir enthusiasts are lining up, anxious to try out our new vocal cords on some heavenly version of the Hallelujah Chorus. Suddenly, I hear a group of juniors starting to sing. We want to shush them up, embarrassed that such a lack of behavioral and musical standards would rear its ugly head at a time like this. 
But Jesus just grins as he pushes past us in order to see the children unself-consciously swaying to and fro, singing, Whose side are you leaning on? I'm leaning on the Lord's side. I lean, I lean. <laughs> Jesus then does the unthinkable and joins the crowd of juniors in singing the rest of the song, complete with all emotions, and he opens his arms wide and proclaims, Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And whoever is willing to accept my grace and drop all pretenses of self-righteousness and become as a child may enter. Our Father of grace, thank you for loving us, not in spite of our individuality and our flaws, but because of them and because your grace is always sufficient. Help us to love as you love. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.